0: Heavenly Father, as Your people, we gather this morning to give praises to the Lamb of God, the Lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth, and because He was, we stand here today as people covered, washed in His blood, as, as eerie as that might sound to the, our modern ears, to be, to be thought of as covered by m- blood that was drawn from the veins of the Savior. It is He whose death has meant life for us. It is His sacrifice by which we live. And we stand as people, O oh God, not based on any merit that we... Uh, we wouldn't dream of appealing to merit, O oh God. We appeal to the Lamb of God. We are sons and daughters of the, of the Father because we are related to Him. Father, forgive any man or woman here today who would be so so benighted as to think that their lives have merited anything in your presence. Might they see that it is sin that called forth a Savior and it is sin that has been paid for at Calvary and it is sin that can be forgiven as we find ourselves buried into the bosom of the Savior. We come as a people bought with a price. We are not our own. We glory in the fact that we are not our own, but yours, sons and daughters of the thrice holy God. And we pray that as we worship today, something might spill out of our hearts that is genuinely, that is genuine love for the God who made us and redeemed us in Christ Jesus. Oh God, there's so much that's on our hearts. Some hearts in this room are oh so heavy. And I pray that You might give them a sense of liberty and release as the truth is spoken and prayed and sung. Might there be a a sense of exhilaration from knowing we have been not only in the presence of God, but in the presence of His worshiping people. And I pray, Father, that as we fix our attention on all that goes on in front of us, that our hearts might be strangely moved, that we might find ourselves more deeply in love with this God that we sing about, and that that love might be reflected in the decisions and the choices that we make tomorrow. Father, the world is not waiting for us to sing to them. The world is not waiting for us to define our doctrinal position. The world is waiting for us to live in reality waiting for us to back up with life what we say with lip. And I pray, O God, that what people might see from this body of believers is a steadfast determination to live lives that are irresistible in their consistency of following the Lamb. We come to you and bring gifts to you, O Lamb of God receive them, use them for the advancement of your kingdom, nothing would make us happier than to think that the God of heaven and earth has used us to bring glory to himself. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. word, if you will, and turn with me to Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. The book of Ephesians, chapter 5. I want to read to you a very familiar passage of Scripture. If uh, if it's not familiar, then listen with great uh, care, uh, carefulness, because it is a wonderful statement. Follow as I read now, beginning at verse 22, Ephesians chapter 5, at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands. Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife, loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ in the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you, in particular, so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. I don't know how much you've been around this summer, but um, let me just kind of let you know what we're up to. I've been out a little bit myself, I'm vacationing, I was out last week as many or some of you know. But uh, what I did is kind of devote this summer to a, a, a topic, uh, the overarching topic being that of how to build an irresistible testimony. Ladies and gentlemen, um, I, I don't know whether you've heard this from me, I think you will continue to hear it from me and I hope you can pick it up, pouring out of my pores. But uh, I am convinced that once this building is completed, that's enough. Um, for, as far as I'm concerned uh, We have spent as much money As we need to spend on meeting our needs So let's spend the, Let's spend a higher portion Of our resources Reaching the world For Jesus Christ That's where I'm headed uh, I do believe I'm passionately committed To that building out there I want to see it get up And finish And get on in there And then we can say Okay Now it's behind us Let's get moving we, Everything that we need By way of plant Is here Now let's begin to singularly devote ourselves to reaching an unchurched world (coughs) through maturing believers. And so what I've done this summer is try to say, okay, what is it that we could do to make ourselves more appealing to a non-Christian audience? Now, ladies and gentlemen, I understand as well as you, I hope you know that, that ultimately if the Holy Spirit of God does not precede us, our efforts are in vain. I understand that. Uh, I teach that. You know that. But uh, assuming for a moment That the Holy Spirit of God would use vessels that resemble Jesus Christ. What is it that we could do to make ourselves um, more irresistible to a non-Christian world who's got lots of questions, ladies and gentlemen? They're not anti-spiritual things. In fact, they're looking for spiritual answers. And I think we've got them. Unfortunately... I think you'll agree. We haven't done a very good job in delivering them. And so what I want to do is, is try and give you some input that would be used of God to make us into people that would draw attention to ourselves, that would make us, in a sense, magnetic so that men may see our good works and glorify our God who is in heaven. That's my intention. And so I'm, I'm preaching on building an irresistible testimony. That's what we're up to, have been for the last few weeks, and we will continue through, through most of the month of August. Now, all that by way of introduction. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I love amusement parks. I'm 53 and still love to ride roller coasters. I, I, um, I can't get my wife on there with me, but I still love uh, amusement parks. I love fine dining. I love to go to nice restaurants with my wife, and I enjoy that. I enjoy snow skiing. Uh, not real good, never took a lesson, but I can get up and down. Uh, That is, after I fall. Uh, I love to read. When I'm out for a weekend or a week, that's usually what you'll find me doing under some umbrella, reading. But ladies and gentlemen, all of that combined, and then some, doesn't compare to how much I enjoy my marriage. And I don't think I'm the only one here who can say that. Not only that, I, I, uh, I don't think non-Christians and Christians are different, different in that. I think if, if you enjoy your marriage, there's normally one of your chief joys. And I have to say, ladies and gentlemen, that uh, as far as this planet is concerned, my chief joy is my marriage. Um, I, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, I think we all understand that there's nothing better than a good marriage. Unfortunately, there's nothing worse than a bad one. Um, My point in all that and for today has been, as I have already suggested, that um, I want to see us be more useful to God in reaching the non-Christian world. And I want to suggest to you that the non-Christian world wants the same things we want in terms of uh, of marriage, um, they want harmony and happiness and intimacy and companionship, just like you and I do. Our uh, our how-to, that is the Christians' how-to, is supposed to be different from theirs. Um, I'm not real sure it is, because unbelievably, Christian marriages are busting up at the same rate if not even a higher rate than our non-Christian marriages but wouldn't you agree that if uh, if the Christian church could rectify that ugly little stat that is about how often our marriages are breaking up if we could somehow change that don't you agree don't you think that the non-Christian world would be more willing to listen to us, to listen to us tell them about our heavenly bridegroom? Don't you think they would? If they could see marital health among us. Well, gang, um, my next component part of building an irresistible testimony is just that. Marital health. uh, Of the things that I'm trying to draw together in making us a, 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 or giving us an irresistible testimony. That's, that's about number four. Not in terms of uh, importance, but just in gathering those component parts. That's number four. An attitude, uh, contentment we've talked about already. But marital health. And I'm convinced if we could get this turned around, there's no telling how big our audience might be. I'm not talking about this audience. I'm talking about that audience. The, the, I, I'm, I'm talking about a world that would sit up and take notes of a group of people who have discovered something as to how they might fit their marriages together harmoniously. There's no telling, in my opinion, how how eager they might be to listen if you and I, as proclaimers of Christ, could put together marriages that that ooze with health. And and I'm convinced that that wouldn't prompt them to look to us for answers. And that's what, I, that's what I'm trying to see happen. So, my dear brother and sister in Christ, if you would like to have a more enjoyable marriage and at the same time be useful to God to reach a non-Christian world, then I invite you to listen up this morning. Um, I have some things that I hope will help our marriages individually, but will also help us. In, in developing a testimony that impacts a non Christian world, I want to say really very quickly um, if you've noticed that my wife is not here, it's not because of the subject. Um, she is in Washington, D.C., and will be home tonight. And I want you to know that I didn't sleep well last night, and um, most of it's because I don't do well without her. Um, but I also want to add, the, uh, the model that I'm trying to give you has nothing to do with Jimmy and Susie Young. So stay with me. You know, the, the question that you hear uh, a lot about, uh, about a dog chasing a car, you know, people ask, well, what, what is he going to do if he ever catches it? Well, <clears throat> in marriage, ladies and gentlemen, what happens when we finally catch that love of our lives? What happens when we catch it? Well, I want to suggest that there are a couple of things that hit us pretty quickly. Uh, pretty big shocks that kind of roll over us uh, pretty soon into this thing called marriage. First of all is that we realize that the decision to marry has, in effect, closed more doors than any other decision we've ever made in our lives. It is a deliberate choice on our parts to to take ourselves out of circulation. It's, um, it, it, it's, it means that I can no longer play the field. Every other member of the opposite sex is now off limits to me in terms of an a, a intimate or a deep relationship because of one decision, every other woman, every other person of the opposite sex is now off limits to me. I pick one person who I will eat with, I will sleep with, I will vacation with, and shop with, and invest with, and worship with, and walk with. Not until next summer, or not even for the next 10 years, but for the next 50 to 60 years. You know, ladies and gentlemen, when I was dating many moons ago, I've been married 31 years, um, it was one thing to promise my girlfriend that I would pick her up at 8 o'clock, much less. Making a promise that I'm going to do that and dozens of other things for the next 50 to 60 years. Marriage, ladies and gentlemen, is a decision to put all my eggs in one basket. It's, um, it's a decision to go for broke, to bet all the marvels. With the, with the very real risk that I may just squander my life on one person. But because I've entered this institution I can never look at her or another woman Or if you're a woman, him and another man I can never look at her or another woman quite the same way And all it took was a 30-minute ceremony (laughs) One 30-minute ceremony has altered my relationship To every other woman on the face of this planet 30 minutes And it was easy You know, it was expensive, but it was easy. It's just that which was produced that is so difficult. Speaking of the expense of weddings, I thought this was an interesting observation. It's kind of an aside, but one author, Maggie Gallagher, writes in a book called The Abolition of Marriage. Listen to this. This is an interesting insight. She says, weddings have gotten more extravagant as marriage has become more fragile. The diamonds and the receptions grow bigger as the thing they symbolize, a permanent union of lovers, grows increasingly elusive. The same culture that has made marriages exceedingly difficult because of casual sex, easy cohabitation, easy divorce, and gender wars has made weddings very expensive. Oh, guys, whatever. I thought that was an interesting observation, but the point I'm trying to make is the first thing that seems to shock me once I enter this institution is that the entire center of my universe has been rearranged with one decision. The second thing that seems to come pretty quickly is the enormous shock at how quickly romantic love can be exhausted. For some, it doesn't even survive the honeymoon. You know, it, it is, it's amazing that only a few weeks ago, that thing that was so exciting and so exhilarating and, and, and so vivifying seems to insist now on becoming the most ordinary humdrum and perhaps even boring thing in my whole life. That is the relationship that I that I once valued with all of this passion, and now all of a sudden, where did it go? It's a shock to the system at how quickly romantic love can be exhausted, isn't it? You know, folks, um, once that realization sets in, people begin to look for some kind of help somewhere and they, they, they turn to pop psychology or to common sense or some kind of motivational theory or self-help books or the, the, the latest news on gender differences, all of which are saying to people that marriage marriage is, um, is nothing more than a grand experiment, not a costly commitment. It's, um, it's a very costly commodity without a very good warranty. Um, So modern couples hedge their bets and protect all their assets by writing prenuptial agreements. So uh, what I'm suggesting to you is, ladies and gentlemen, I, I think the first two things that kind of shock our system once we enter this thing is how quickly this romantic love is exhausted. And number two how monumentally my life has been rearranged by one 30-minute ceremony. I remember... I remember the first day I was... I mean, I was married on July the 2nd, but on July the 3rd, Susie and I are in a car, and we're driving to our ultimate honeymoon spot. And I remember the difficulty of looking across those bucket seats and saying that's my wife that is a term that takes some getting used to but once it happens the whole center of my universe has been rearranged now assuming that you can survive the shock of those two very startling discoveries, we are then handed the glorious opportunity of constructing something that is either a, a very enjoyable, adventurous companionship or something that will turn into a disastrous nightmare. And I want to suggest to you the difference between those two things seems to depend largely upon how much or how willing the partners are to be changed. How malleable we are. So, be prepared in marriage, ladies and gentlemen, for some of the most sweeping revolutionary reforms in a lifetime. And I want to mention to you three. Three radical changes. That if we can pull these off, I think sweetness will will return. You know, there's a statement in the book of Proverbs. Um, You know, the book of Proverbs unites to tell us what I said earlier about there's nothing better than a good one, nothing worse than a bad one. You remember the um, the various places in the book of Proverbs talks about um, a man who finds a good wife has found favor from the Lord. And then it turns around and says, a contentious wife is like a constant dripping. You know, they use that in torture in World War II, the constant gripping. Nothing worse than a bad one, but nothing better than a good one. But there's a statement in there that I'm not sure refers to marriage, but I think it does. It refers to a lot of things, actually. It's in Proverbs 27 where we find these words. Iron sharpens iron. (laughs) And, ladies and gentlemen, when you think about that in terms of marriage, that sharpening can be a real painful process, can it not? Sparks can fly, can they not? Um, Very few things are as painful as the fierce attack that marriage launches on the fortress of ego. Because, ladies and gentlemen, marriage, like our God, comes with a built-in abhorrence of self-centeredness. What marriage is, is this wild, audacious attempt To bring two powerful centers of self assertion and self will into some relationship of harmony and cooperation. And while that's being done, each of these centers of self will must be determined to lose. They must be determined not to win. Gang, um, you've heard it said that a, a man's home is, is his castle. Do you like that image? I'm not real wild about it because the idea of a man in his castle, you get, the, you get the sense that a man is some kind of little uh, despot sitting on his throne uh, having everyone rush to meet his needs over there at the corner of Johnson and Wheatland. And all the little serfs are supposed to you know buck up uh, to, the, to the man who's the lord of the castle. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to suggest to you that biblically speaking, that's a very awful image. Because it's more like his home not being his castle. His home is more like his monastery. The place that he goes to deny himself. The modern idea of marriage with all of its cute little slogans, and I heard a bunch of them this week, ladies and gentlemen, about freedom to be me, or... um, respecting differences, or preserving one's identity. Those are all fine, fine, fine fine-sounding phrases. But they're nothing more than propaganda for selfishness, ladies and gentlemen. And marriage is a relationship that is far more engrossing than we ever might have dreamed. And what it demands is two people willing to die to self a pretty big change, isn't it? You know, um, was it twice or once this week? I think it was just once. Maybe it was twice. I had a little couple sitting across my desk from me. You know, sometimes I marry the 45-year-old guy to the 40-year-old woman. And you know, they've been around the block a couple of times. Sometimes I marry people who are, you know, green behind the ears and and, you know, I'm saying things and they didn't hear a word of it. Not a word. And um, I'm just, you know, wasting their time and mine. But after I, I've wasted their time, I try to grab them by the earlobes and say, Now listen to me. I don't know whether you, how you're going to put your marriage together. There's a wonderful blueprint blue in Ephesians 5. Show me two people who are willing to die to self. And I'll show you a marriage that can make it. They usually get that part. I'm not sure they do it. But I'm saying to ladies and gentlemen, once the the romantic love is gone, and we have this opportunity now to either produce disaster or joy, Much of it depends on how malleable we are. And one of the great changes that must take place is this willingness, this determination to die to self. Secondly, I read you this morning uh, from Ephesians chapter 5, and I know when I got to verse 25, several of the husbands were saying, Oh no, here he comes. Um, I had this reputation which i i i really don 't deserve um, and i 'm i 'm going i 'm going to try to change it over the years um, that i 'm really hard on men well i 'm not here to be hard on men i really i didn 't even want to see verse twenty five what I wanted you to see is verse twenty eight ephesians five twenty eight so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. he who loves his wife loves himself you know um This is a wonderful passage of Scripture where... And you may have noticed when I read it, I kind of paused over one section of it uh, in verse 32 where, where Paul says, This is a great mystery. Boy, isn't it? Wouldn't you agree? Wouldn't you agree that putting a marriage together is part of... You know, pretty mysterious as to whether they work or not, you know? But one thing that you get in this little passage that I read is that I'm supposed to be viewing... This partner of mine, both, spouse, both wife and husband, as someone with whom I share a one fleshness. There is a, a mystery, okay, you know, you might, you're, you're, um, your minds might race to the bedroom, but mine is not. I'm saying that something is produced in a marriage that is supposed to be so, so much unity there, so much identity, so much union, that we are now considered to be one. Now, and then he uses this image about uh, taking care of your own body. You know, you wouldn't, um, uh, you wouldn't do anything to your own body to hurt your own body. And there's this marvelous identity between the two of you. Then why on the, why on the earth would you, would you not take care of it? If, my, if I've got an ingrown toenail, I wouldn't smash it with a hammer. If I've got this little annoyance that keeps bothering me, call my wife. I wouldn't dream of smashing it with the hammer because there's such unity and identity and such oneness between the two of us. You know whether you're a man or a woman, a husband or a wife this morning, I say to you, if you're carrying around bitterness towards your spouse, I don't know how you're going to be bitter how you're not going to be bitter with the rest of us. I have said this in the past, I'll say it another thousand times before I retire. Your home, because of this principle of identity and oneness, your home is to be marriage centered, not kid centered, not career centered, not hobby centered. Not church work centered, not friends centered. There is to be someone who occupies center stage along with you, and that can only be your spouse. You know, ladies and gentlemen, that's a pretty big change. That's a shift of focus here, you know. I used to be able to go, you know, (laughs) to go fishing with the boys. (laughs) You know, and wives rarely at home because you're absolutely consumed with the kids. I want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, I am not one flesh with my kids. I'm one flesh with Susie. Everything in my home is to be marriage-centered. Not any of that other stuff. Guys, we are being asked to buy one another at the cost of all those other things. Not that I own Susie or she me, but I do own her in the sense that I own nothing else. In marriage, Susie is to be that pearl of great price. And to have her, all lesser loves must be relegated to a lower place on the totem pole. Next to my relationship to Christ, my priority is my spouse. That's quite a demand. How malleable are you? Thirdly, you know, everywhere we look, uh, we um, we see alarms and fences and walls to keep people at a at a safe distance. But in marriage, all of that is reversed. In marriage, all of the walls are supposed to come down. Not, not only does a couple live under the same roof, but they sleep under the same covers. Uh, so distance and secrets and hiding are, into, are, are enemies of intimacy. We are supposed to know and to be known and consequently accountability for every nook and cranny of my life, all of it. Is at the very heart of marriage One single act of treason Can destroy the whole relationship Marriage is supposed to be that place Where forgiveness and vulnerability And sharing and loving and listening Are all being practiced and honed to a fine art I I don't have to do that with another person in the world I don't have to do that with anybody else in the world Or at any other place in the world Except this treasure trove we call marriage Marriage nothing makes me more vulnerable as does marriage. Or at least it's supposed to. Love is the stuff that brings people out into the light. Love frees us. Because, ladies and gentlemen, it is not love in a home that eats up time and energy. I'll tell you what eats up time and energy. The lack of love. I am am one who is supposed to stand naked before my spouse and unashamed. Emotionally, physically, and every other way. And I know, I know, I know, there is no hurt like the hurt that can happen in the place where we love, ladies and gentlemen. To be vulnerable and to be betrayed, nothing is worse. And and may I say at this point, There is always a way out, but it's not necessarily divorce. The way out is death to self, ladies and gentlemen. Marriage is a form of suicide, ladies and gentlemen, and so is divorce. But divorce can be the single most traumatic experience a human can undergo, whereas by death to self and marriage can be the most liberating. That's another big, big demand to be vulnerable. How willing are you? Let me close with two observations. Concerning this death to self that I've harped on, ladies and gentlemen, there's only one thing that can attack us at the root of selfishness. And that is serving. And I want you to know if you can't serve your spouse, then who in the world can you serve? the uh, poor Christian marriages that are perhaps even in this room where willfulness rules. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, it makes a laughing stock of the whole Christian testimony. Our gospel is cancelled by the way that we live. You want to work on your selfishness? Then serve. Not me. Don't serve me. Serve her or him. Secondly, concerning vulnerability, Communication, of course, is the key. And let me say to you, if communication is an issue in your marriage, that skill can be learned. The absence of communication is not because we can't. It's because we won't. You can learn to be a good communicator. You know, um, taking those vows, those wild promises that we make before God and friends and a preacher, it, it really is an act of faith. There, there are no lasting marriages without a continuing secret touch of His grace in our lives. In, in purely human terms, those vows are impossible to keep. The saying of them takes about 90 seconds. The keeping of them requires grace. I want to read you six or eight sentences from a book by Mike Mason on the mystery of marriage. And if you want to know how, how much he has impacted me, then go read his book. It's in, our, it's in our bookstore. The Mystery of Marriage by Mike Mason. But listen to what Mike Mason says. To love is not to view someone as being the most wonderful person in the world or to think of them as a saint. On the contrary, it may mean to see them as we must come to see ourselves even as the chief of sinners. It is to see all their weaknesses, their falseness and shoddiness, to have all their very worst habits exposed, and then to be enabled by the pure grace of God. Not only to accept them, but to accept them in a deeper way than was ever before possible. You know ladies and gentlemen I submit to you that marriage is one of the most powerful weapons in the arsenal of God for revolutionizing the human heart and one of the reasons our testimony is so weak and flagging in that community is because we say we are related to the one who is the servant we are related to the one who gave himself we're there one who, who are related to incarnate love. And yet we can't pull that off in our homes. Come on, my brother and sister in Christ. Let's go do that. And not only enjoy our marriages far more, but maybe just maybe. God will see fit to use us to win the world. Our Father, I do pray that You will stir, your people's, stir in Your people a fresh commitment to be all that You would have us be in terms of our marriage. I pray, Father, that You will guard the husbands and guard the wives of this church, that we might become people who are determined not to win but we're determined to serve. We're determined to be vulnerable. We're, deter- we're determined to, uh, to put it all in all the eggs in one basket. To go for broke. To bet all the marbles on this one glorious institution known as marriage. Thank You, O oh God, that there are so many good ones in this room. We pray for those Who cannot say that? Father, give us an opportunity to share the beauty of our bridegroom to the world. Might there be an opportunity for all of us to win people to Christ because they have seen how sweet our marriage is. Now, Father, we commit ourselves to those goals and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.